Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, the day's date is 6260, according to the Kemet calendar. Sports. We want to pay homage to Kobe Bean Bryant, who tragically transitioned and entered into the spirit world. The son of the great Joe Jellybean Bryant, defensive stalwart, formerly of the Philadelphia 60s. Peace and blessings. Rest in power, Kobe Bean Bryant. As an addendum, this week we have the Super Bowl. There are those who play and those who own. 70% of the players, the employees are black. The league has a 0% ownership. There's a paltry number of African Americans who are represented as general managers, player personnel heads, Head coaches, I believe there's Flores, Tomlin, and Lynn of the San Diego Chargers. Suffice it to say, the Rooney Rule is a toothless joke. We can aptly describe the National Football League as inward for lease, according <laughs> to the owners. At least that's the perception that... They have of us, suffice it to say. Clearly, this is racism at the highest level. When we talk about black up, backup quarterbacks, there are very few backup African-American quarterbacks. Either you're starting or you're just simply not there. It is implied that the backup must have a social relationship with the starter. In other words, they must be acquainted enough to go play golf together, go bowl together, eat pizza together. Their wives and families must have a malleable relationship. But we offer this. If you don't put them in the room together, you don't know if they even, at a superficial level, will get along or not. Some of the games that people play enjoy the Super Bowl and its traditional military overkill, cognizant of the fact that Africans and people everywhere are, to quote Dr. King, trembling under their bombs. This is the African Liberation Media. I'm here with Brother Macaru and Brother Amos. Take it wherever you want to take it, gentlemen. Obibi Fahodie, Bado Mampampano, the struggle continues, African family. Another opportunity to discuss issues that, from a perspective, that won't be discussed anywhere else from this perspective. Yes, we did get the news today that Kobe Bean Bryant uh, perished in a helicopter crash. Apparently there were five people on the helicopter. Didn't have a chance to check the details as to why the copter crashed. Apparently his 13-year-old daughter was was one of the passengers, but we do know that that Kobe uh, 
During his playing days, he would charter a helicopter to fly from his home in Orange County to the Staples Center, about 49 miles away. And, uh, you know, he said that, you know, it, it helped him, you know, in terms of his game preparation, not, not having to, um, you know, deal with the traffic, you know, the Los Angeles, the famous horrible Los Angeles traffic, despite the fact that the freeways are 12 lanes wide. Um, so I, I don't know exactly. Uh, there was a report that they were, he and his daughter, they were going to some type of a basketball event, a basketball practice. I guess his oldest daughter plays basketball. And uh, the copter crashed. So this is a, this is a tragedy. Uh, what I can say, what I can say about Kobe is that uh, he was a fierce competitor. He was an absolute fierce, fierce competitor. And, you know, when we think about sports, we know that entertainment is the opiate of the masses of the American people. It provides a tremendous uh, outlet, a distraction from, you know, the daily things that are, that are being done by the oligarchic psychopathocracy that runs this country. But one of the things that we can learn is teamwork and being a fierce competitor because imagine if African people were fierce competitors in the arenas of power, in the arenas of in the arena of the of culture, communications, economics, education, and politics. I mean if we applied that same tenacity to those areas, where would the African world be? Well, I dare say that we would be where we were, free, proud, productive, prosperous, and powerful people. Uh, as a side note, uh, one of the issues that we were going to discuss today, that, we're, that we are going to discuss today, is the brouhaha that LeBron James has created by his comments regarding uh, William Jefferson Clinton, known by some people as Slick Willie. We call him Sick Willie because he's the living embodiment of the pathology of white supremacy. Uh, it's just a coincidence that LeBron James passed Kobe last night to be the third leading player, uh, third leading uh, all-time scorer. I guess Kareem is number one. Is it Kareem and then Jordan? Is that the way it works? Yes. So they passed Wilt at some point along, along the lines. I mean, I guess, I guess it, it, it's it's uh, you know these guys uh, uh, scored a lot, but they started playing much earlier than you know Russell and the, the, the Big O and Clyde Frazier and all these guys, Jerry West, all those guys. They had to play f four years of college, and these guys do get to start playing a little bit earlier. So. Mm -hmm. That can account, I guess, somewhat for for that, but that doesn't take it away from the the, the prolific uh, athleticism and and ability of of the Kobe Bryant's and LeBron Jameses. But that doesn't have anything to do also with the liberation and empowerment of African people. You got anything on on that? Almost. Yeah, I grew up watching Kobe. I wasn't a Lakers fan, but I was definitely uh, respected. Kobe Bryant's game. Um, I always enjoyed watching basketball and playing basketball. So Kobe was really around my age. I remember being in high school and playing AAU, 
and uh, everybody kept talking about this guy from Philly. And they said, man, you got to see this guy. Man, this guy looks just like Jordan. And I remember Kobe being drafted by the Hornets and then getting traded for Vladi Divac because he didn't want to play in Charlotte. But it's definitely a tragedy to see him go down like that, you know, such as such an unexpected um, way for it to way for it to happen, you know, a helicopter crash. Excuse me. But um, yeah, I think that he definitely was one of the best players that I've ever seen play the game. Um, I know LeBron just passed him in scoring, but we all know LeBron couldn't hold a candle to Kobe in scoring. Um, so it just shows you, I mean, records records really don't mean what they say all of the time. Just like, you know, Emmitt Smith, he yeah. has a Russia record, but Barry Sanders was, you know, a lot better than Emmitt Smith. Yeah, and Jim Brown was better than all of them. So, I mean, records, don't, records always don't speak the truth. Um, but, I mean – at this point, Kobe is, is an ancestor. Yeah, I he, mean he he, he didn't he didn't he didn't represent black people from a liberation or African centered perspective, but he represented the talent um, that a black man had as far as being within the black race. He represented being one of the best basketball players to ever play the game. So I, I'll say. You know, positive energy to his uh, his family and uh, to to everybody who followed him. Kobe had produced a film uh, resulting in him garnering an Emmy Award, if I'm not mistaken, uh, titled "Basketball" that was played at the Coliseum, but. Uh, you know, to the point you made, um, entertainment has always been a significant part, uh, given our slow sojourn uh, throughout this system of white supremacy. But it's clear, you know, to piggyback on what Brother Macaru said, when the rules are clear, you know, and the playing field is even, well, then we can excel. But in too many instances, you know, intellectually and academically, we have internalized the inferiorization that has been meted out toward us. In fact, you find that in too many instances um, with mothers and fathers who've also internalized inferiorization of their own children. Uh, you made a point, uh, Jerry West uh, said earlier, I remember when this kid was coming out of Lower Marion mm -hmm. High School. Yeah. Yeah, Jerry West made a point. He says, a kid in Philadelphia that I just absolutely have to get. You know, he was talking about uh, Kobe Bryant. I did observe the evolution of this kid uh, from a kid who just relied exclusively on raw talent to a guy who applied uh, thought and immersed himself in the cognitive aspect of the game. When he first came in the league, they lost the championship to Tim Duncan. 
and the San Antonio Spurs in Sports Illustrated on the cover read Substance, making reference to Tim Duncan over style. And from that point on, you know, I would observe Magic Johnson use his index finger to point to his forehead as if to say, think, Kobe, think. You know, and gradually the kid evolved, evolved into a, a supreme competitor, fearless competitor, uh, clearly one of the greatest mid-sized players, I would argue the point, you can make the argument that he's the greatest mid-sized player that the Lakers have ever had. And that's a tough one for me because I did wear number 22, you know, recognition and my respect I have for the great Elgin Baylor. You know, he's a bad brother, superior hang time, of course. I mean, he probably had the most impressive scoring outing in in history. I know Wilt scored 100, but to score 81 points in a game, in the in the floor of the game, and they won. Yeah, <laughs> that was my problem. He scored 81 and they won. He and my an amateur coach talking about the necessity of inclusion, and this brother's got a top heavy scoring performance. <laughs> you know, just negates everything I was preaching. Yeah, Cobra's a bad brother, you know, suffice it to say. And uh, his transition will be well attended by the who's who in sports. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, as, as we said earlier, uh, one of the issues we did want to discuss from the perspective of the liberation and empowerment of African people has to do with the fact that uh, Sick Willie Clinton showed up at a basketball game in New York this week and LeBron James apparently was just absolutely head over heels just thrilled to to meet this guy and and and, and to shake hands with him and and to make some some comments that were somewhat uh you know well not somewhat just downright questionable as to what what was he thinking or what did he what does he not know let me let me read this from the new Jim Crow by Professor Michelle Alexander on page 56. Far from resisting the emergence of the new caste system, President Clinton escalated the drug war beyond what conservatives had imagined, had imagined possible a decade earlier. As the Justice Policy Institute has observed, the Clinton administration's tough-on-crime policies resulted in the largest increases in federal and state prison inmates of any president in American history. Of any president in American history. And LeBron James said, we appreciate you still to this day, Big Bill. In a, in, in, in a tweet where he also uh, uh, channeled Toni Morrison, uh, calling uh, Clinton the first black president, and he also said Clinton was the GOAT. Uh, this this is incredible. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah, this, I mean, this is, I mean, if, 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 you, if you stop and think about, uh, you know, what, drive, what would drive a person with any degree of understanding, I mean, LeBron, I think, was born in 1984. So, you know, he would have been, you know, like about 12 when, when Clinton... Uh, 
Well, he would have been 10 when Clinton introduced his three strikes in you out, and he may have not been been aware of that. And and uh, two years later, when Clinton introduces one strikes, but the history, I mean, this guy is a he 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 reads a lot. You know, you see him sitting in locker rooms before games, and uh, for him to say we appreciate you to this day, to this day, uh, Big Bill, uh, it is. You know, to me, is just is absolutely incredible. So one one of the things that uh, you know we put up a post and said LeBron James and Sick Willie detached from reality. He talks about appreciation, appreciation such as this. Most people are familiar with Clinton's three strikes policy, but not his one strike policy. If you break the law, you no longer have a home in public housing. One strike and you're out. That should be the law everywhere in America. So Clinton said this in his uh, 1996 State of the Union message. Some examples of how one striking you out worked. An entire family can be kicked, can be evicted if one person is caught with drugs, even if the offender is blocks away and if the head of the household knew nothing uh, about the wrongdoing. So these are some examples from Oakland, California. Willie Lee a 75-year-old disabled grandmother says she does not know where she will she will go. She emerged from her unit long enough Tuesday to issue a statement. This was back in 2002, saying, "I didn't do anything wrong, and I don't want to be homeless." Lee's grandson was caught smoking marijuana, which Sick Willie smoked, in a in a, in a nearby parking lot. Like grandmother Willie Lee, Barbara Hill, 63, faces eviction because her grandson was caught smoking marijuana in a nearby parking lot. Herman Walker, a 78-year-old stroke victim, could also lose his home because his in-home care worker was found with drug paraphernalia. So this is punitive, this is draconian, and this is a person that LeBron James is saying that he appreciates appreciates what appreciates i mean it it's 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 incredible when you think about it professor michelle alexander comments on the real sick willie it was the clinton administration that supported many of the laws and practices that now serve millions into perm- into a permanent underclass for example it was the clinton administration that supported federal legislation denying financial aid to college students who had once been caught with drugs. It was the Clinton administration that passed laws discriminating against people with criminal records, making it nearly impossible for them to have access to public housing. And it was the Clinton administration that championed a federal law denying even food stamps and food support to people convicted of drug felonies. You're going to starve somebody because they got caught with some, with some weed. You're going to evict uh, elderly black people, grandmothers, who probably had to take a grandchild into a home uh, because of, you know, some other kind of situation going on with the parents. The kid is out somewhere in a parking lot smoking weed and the grandmother gets kicked out. This is something that he appreciates. Come on, LeBron, do some studying, do some reading. Don't just get up there and make asinine statements. Now, we understand you you know, uh, supporting the I Promise School and you've made a lot of other donations to things. 
We also know that uh, you just clammed up when Tamir Rice got killed and, and said you didn't know what was going on. But this is absolutely ridiculous. It's ludicrous for, for a man of your intelligence, a man as, 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 as well read as, as you say you are, to be making, to be making uh, you know, a, a statement like that. Uh, he said this, between him and Barack, my presidents, guys that I've admired, when Bill was in office, and when Bill was in office, and obviously when Barack was in office, James said, to be able to have a personal relationship with Barack and being able to go up to Bill and he knows me is just surreal. Why wouldn't he know you? What I mean? What is the big deal, man? The reality now. This is Michelle Alexander. The reality is that during both the Obama and Clinton years, highly racialized and punitive systems thrived under liberal presidents who were given the benefit of the doubt by those who might otherwise have been critics. Obama and Clinton's public displays of affection for communities of color, the egalitarian values they preached, and their liberal or progressive stances on other issues have shielded these vast systems of control from close scrutiny. Many of us saw these presidents as good people with our best interests at heart, doing what they could to navigate a political environment in which only limited justice is possible. All of these factors pay, played a role, but one was key. These systems grew with relatively little political resistance because people of all colors were willing to tolerate the disposal of millions of individuals once they were labeled criminals in the media and political discourse. This painful reality suggests that ending our nation's habit of creating enormous systems of racial and social control requires us to expand our sphere of moral concern so widely that none of us, not even those branded criminals, can be viewed or treated as disposable. So what she's saying here is that because these guys had an image, a very uh, carefully crafted image of being progressive, of being liberal, that they got a pass while they were engaging in these uh, draconian uh, acts against uh, particularly African people and also also people of color. When Barack Obama had a chance to reduce the crack to powder cocaine and uh, uh, ratio from 100 to 1 to 1 to 1, he compromised and, and, and reduced it to 18 to 1. And it's a fact that even Trump has released more people from prison than Obama did. More, you know, in, in, in the few years that he's been in there, that's not, that's not to give him any credit for that. But, I mean, we're just talking facts here. So, you know, what we're saying is that Brother, brother James, Brother James, you need to study the writings of Sister Michelle Alexander. And, you know, if you really don't know something, I mean, you know, keep your emotions to yourself. Just say, look, man, I'm glad to meet you or whatever and shake the dude's hand and going about your business without making these ridiculous comments. And another thing too is Bill Clinton is a pedophile. <laughs> now, I mean, we know what Bill Clinton did with, with uh, the mass incarceration, but what a lot of people don't know is that Bill Clinton had a very close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. He flew on his private jet called the Lolita Express, mm -hmm. over 26 times, flew to his private island, 
This is a plane that Jeffrey Epstein used for child sex trafficking. Mm. Bill Clinton got caught in a photo on the plane with one of the girls who was said to be a sex slave. Mm. And this plane has gone not only to his private island, but in 2002 he took the private jet of Jeffrey Epstein to Africa. Oh, Lord. So we have we don't know if Bill Clinton has killed more black men through prison or killed more black children through pedophilia, sex trafficking. Wow. Wow. And, th- and this is the person that LeBron is calling the GOAT. Mm. It's sad. If he really knew who Bill Clinton was, he would he would have refused he to take the picture. <laughs> he would have done like Doc Holliday. <laughs> he, he, apparently he does not know, brother. But uh, while we're talking about sick Willie, let's take it to another level. Uh, the great uh, Pulitzer Prize winner Chris Hedges actually points the Clinton malfeasance as being a contributor to the rise of Trump. Uh, in his most egregious assault against the working class. Of course, Glass-Steagall, along with mass incarceration, 55% of the people who voted for Trump, this is uh, Chris Hedges talking, absolutely voted for uh, Trump because they said they would not vote for Billary Clinton. Mm. You know, we're talking about the the duo. Mm. You know, and whenever... I guess people lose hope in a person who is purported to uh, be a liberal. Well, then they disdain the whole concept of liberalism. You know, Hedges writes that uh, uh, during 1933, the Nazis made an appeal to the German public by projecting themselves as being believable. Mm-hmm. You know, and you had a right wing shift toward this type of uh, barbarism, uh, suffice it to say. Of course, the brothers have mentioned mass incarceration, um, you know, and other um, policies uh, that he was chiefly responsible for. Hmm. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Moving right along, uh, once again, we have France... Uh, in Africa, and something very interesting happened. Uh, the United States uh, supposedly made some comments that uh, they might need the troops they have in Africa to um, confront Russia and China. And uh, this obviously caused uh, a tremendous amount of stress on the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, So we put up a post titled, France begs the U.S. to keep its military in Africa. If the U.S. decided to withdraw from Africa, it would be bad news for us. Now, this is President Macron. So why would the U.S. pulling out of Africa be bad when us, I'm assuming he means France, why would it be bad news? More than 4,000 deaths were reported in the Sahel in 2019, a dramatic increase over the 770 in 2016. France has launched its biggest overseas military operation to assist uh, the jihadist threat. Around 4,500 French soldiers have been deployed in the area since 2014 to oust various jihadists. The U.S. provides French forces with uh, plane refueling and intelligence from drones. The U.S. has some 7,000 special forces in rotation 
on the African continent to fight jihadists, particularly in Somalia. An additional 2,000 soldiers are conducting training missions in 40 African countries and providing logistical assistance to the French mission. It also has a drone base in Niger, which provides key intelligence capabilities. We are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on, the French, on a French force that has not been able to turn the tide. It is not even a case of whack-a-mole. For all, for all that we are spending, we're not getting much out of it. A senior administration official who was not authorized to speak said. So once again, here we have the French <laughs> who have been, uh, I guess they, they went into Mali in 2014. And this, the, the jihadist uh, activities in the region, in the, in the entire Sahel, have only gotten worse. So uh, somebody in the, in the Trump administration is saying, why are we spending all this, mo this money? These people can't even whack a mole. I mean, but this, but this doesn't surprise us, I mean, when it comes to, when it comes to France. Uh, but here's, here's, here's the interesting thing. There have been protests in the streets of Mali, Burkina Faso, and other countries in the Sahel asking their leaders to have the French removed. Once again, this points to something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, I can't remember when, about the need for the African Union to form its own military force, you know, to deal with these issues that are affecting Africa. But instead, <laughs> instead, the African leaders who were meeting with uh, Macron begged France to stay in Africa oh, and then asked uh, for other Europeans to help France. President Emmanuel Macron and five, uh, five African leaders agreed that French troops will remain in the fight against uh, Islamist militants. Macron is increasingly frustrated over calls from protesters in Mali and elsewhere for France to get out of the countries it once ruled as colonies. I know who is dying for the citizens of Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso, Mr. Macron said angrily at a news conference after the summit meeting. It's French soldiers. The leaders of Niger, Mali, Mauritania, Burkina Faso, and Chad have expressed their wish for the pursuit of France's military engagement in the Sahel. They said in a joint statement, they said in a joint statement, they then pleaded with other, for, with other European countries to join France's uh, mostly lonely fight in the region and protectively express gratitude for the tactical support of the United States, so the United States, which has been threatening to pull troops out from the region. So France is begging the United States, please don't leave. We can't do this alone. We can't, we can't fight these handful of jihadists that, 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 that are running around between Mali, Bikini Faso, uh, Bikini Faso, Niger, and Chad. And uh, they, they're asking, they're begging for the United States to stay, and and the Africans are begging, are begging for, for more help from other, from other uh, uh, European countries and the United States. So, uh, France's uh, defense minister came to the United States today, to uh, to try to lobby the the Trump administration, uh, because. Um, uh, Paris and uh, France and its allies considered a region increasingly critical for ensuring Europe's security. 
against jihadist threats and for uh, stemming an unchecked flow of migrants across the Mediterranean. So now you kind of see, you know, what the real objective, you, the real reason uh, why they're there, not to mention, of course, the, the vast minerals, uh, uranium particularly in Niger. The United States has been a key, key ally for France's 4,500-member uh, operation, providing intelligence and surveillance via drones. The American commitment to the region is essential because they provide capabilities, some of which cannot be replaced. In other words, the French are saying, we can't do this. We just can't do it, so we got to have the United States. Uh, and, and, and the United States is complaining because they're saying it's costing them about $45 million a year, which is really just a drop in the uh, DOD bucket, you know, when you really look at it. But here's the interesting thing. As soon as Trump, someone in the Trump administration made this suggestion that they might be removing troops from uh, Africa, the war party, that is the Republicans and the Democrats, joined forces in the Senate led by uh, Miss Lindsey Graham and another senator named Coons. I'm not making fun. That's the guy's name. They, they are trying to pass a resolution to force Trump to stay in Africa because they said if you pull out of Africa, you are giving it to Russia and China. Always. So when it comes to imperialism, mm -hmm. when it comes to war, there's only one party, the war party. It just has two wings. Now, they may have differences on some other issues, but when it comes to the most important thing that maintains the American empire— and see, this is one thing I've always said about people when, uh, you know, I was obviously a severe critic of Barack Obama and, uh, you know, pretty just a handful of us on a, on an island back in uh, 2007, 2008. One of the things I always said to people is, what does the presidency of the United States represent to you? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What is it? Why are you so excited? about a black man occupying this position. What does it mean to you? And when I would pose these questions, as they were criticizing me, I would pose these questions, and you would get all types of answers and whatnot, but basically it's because people see the presidency of the United States as the supreme uh, position of power and uh, prestige in the world, even though that's the place from which African people have been slaughtered. <laughs> you know, from Washington, Washington to Trump, right? They don't see that the president of the United States is the manager of the American empire. Mm -hmm. That's the purpose. That's why they can put an Obama in place. It doesn't matter. The job is to manage the empire. The question is, how do they choose to manage the empire? And Obama obviously did a great job of managing, of managing the empire. Okay, Trump has a totally different tack on it, but but when Trump gets too far out of line, they can pull him back in line, in in any time they choose to, um, you know, without going in, you know into a Dealey Plaza mode. But 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 this but this is but this is the thing that 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 really gets us hung up on these guys is that we don't have a clear concept of what purpose the president of the United States serves, and how could you call any one of them great? When we look at the history of African people, you know, in this country. And it's it's sad because it really shows that we are in last place because they have to try to convince the public 
that they're fighting for security in Iran, Iraq, uh, all of the other places, uh, Syria and all these places. They just come out and tell you straight up that we're in Africa because we don't want to give it to Russia and China. This is blatantly telling you that we are there for the resources. It has nothing to do with protecting the people in the country. They could care less about that. Lindsey Graham has really been the most outspoken senator for moving the war on terror to Africa. To, to Africa. Mm-hmm. He's, 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 he's been speaking about this for the past three years. Mm-hmm. So on one end, we have the leaders who are saying that the same people who we should not be trusting because of their history, we need you to come in and save us. And then on the other hand, you have the American leadership here that are telling the public, this is what we're going in to do. So they, so obviously they must not be concerned about how black people here feel about Africa. <laughs> because if they were, they would try to be a little bit more discreet in their actions. But they know at this point, 90% of black people in America could care less about the African continent. They, they, they saw that when Obama bombed Africa and nobody here, I'm not talking about the people who are conscious, I'm talking about the average black person, stood up and said anything about it. And this goes back to uh, one of Slick Willie's, Sick Willie's initial move as a policymaker when he bombed the Al Shaddai pharmaceutical plant. In Sudan. It, okay, in the Sudan. Brother Mike used to talk about that back during the blacklist days, but it, it's clear that humanitarian intervention is a lie, uh, but we do get caught up, brother, in a change in form, but not a change in essence. Uh, Jamil Abdul Elamine told us many years ago that the function of a president was to basically, well, you know, directly support the military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, I mean, this is something that we have to really organize. You got African Liberation Day coming up. Um, what can we do here to put the pressure on this government no, to let them a- know that we are forced here and we're not going to sit back and let 1884-85 happen again? And then another positive thing is on the on the continent – even though the leaders are giving into this, many of the youth and many of the people are protesting this, actively protesting this, um, in most cases on a daily basis, especially in the French-controlled West African countries. Exactly, and you know, and and and, and that was the thing when uh, when uh, Macron called these uh, five African, uh, these neo-colonial uh, politicians to France to meet. The first thing that he told them was that if they didn't if they didn't quell those demonstrations, France was gonna pull out of Africa. Now we know that was we know that was an empty bluff. They ain't about to pull out. Where would they be without where would they be without Africa? But once he once he once he made the threat, once he made the threat, then all of the leaders start, started, you know, jumping in line saying, Oh no, you know, we don't want France to leave. In fact, we want more Europeans more Europeans to come in. So now, now what what might we expect? We might expect these leaders to call out their military to clamp down on the people who are in the streets, 
you know, in Mali, in Burkina Faso, who are, who are, who are protesting because they're the ones who are being killed. Because, you know, these, these, see, the, the, problem, the, what the problem I have with these terrorists is that they are, they, they are not precision military scientists who attack the people who are causing them a problem. They blow up schools, restaurants, marketplaces where African people are selling, you know, I've almost been to Africa many times. You know, most of the commerce for the average person is taking place in a marketplace where someone is, is selling, you know, food or clothing or, or different types of things. They, you know, one of the things that they were doing that this, uh, this, uh, one of the most barbaric organizations on the planet, uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria, they they would strap a remote control bomb on a seven-year-old girl or an 11-year-old girl, have her walk into a marketplace where you got hundreds of thousands of Africans going about their daily business, and they would detonate the bomb strapped to a young girl kill the young girl, and kill hundreds of African people in these marketplaces. These people are some of the lowest cowards that have ever existed on the planet. So the, the African masses who are suffering as a result of this are saying, man, look, we need to do something ourselves. So, so now that France is complaining about it, I would not be surprised if we don't see some type of crackdown. You know, we've seen what they've, you know, done to, uh, you know, the outspoken leaders like Kimmy Saber and the sister we talked about last week uh, that they um, uh, deported from Cote d'Ivoire. This, this is what we're up against, man. But, but, and but, Chiambori Kwa, who got, who got fired? Who's that? Uh, Dr. Chiambori. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Quo. Yeah, Dr. Quo, that, yes, right. So, you know, the same thing. So, I mean, you know, the, the, these are the things that, 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 that we're up against. And at the same time we got this going on, we got a bunch of Negroes running around over here talking about they don't want nothing to do with Africa. They're descendants of slaves. And they're organizing, uh, you know, they, they got two different groups now, and they're fighting amongst one another. Uh, Yvette Carnell and Antonio Moore's group on one side and Tariq Nasheed's group on the other side. And um, uh, Moore knows had a conference, so now Nasheed is going to have a conference and these these people are essentially pushing an isolationist policy. And then at the same time, you got Rick Ross and Ludacris and Steve Harvey going to Africa, getting citizenship, saying that they want to go there and and take the same degenerate stuff that you see over here, right over there to the continent. So they're telling you to give up Africa, and now they're going. And you that- know, they're going to the continent. But I think that this is pivotal for the youth. Because Africa is predominantly ran by the youth. There are more young people in Africa than there are old people. Under 25, right. This is where the youth have to step up and utilize social media, utilize their ability to protest, demonstrate, and eventually work to overthrow these leaders that, these leaders that are currently in office and start a new regime that would be more African-centered and focus on empowering the African continent, not empowering Europe or America or even China or Russia. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, what's, what's it incumbent upon these youth, the youth of the day to do is to really, uh, they don't have to go back to, uh, to you know, Yar Santawar or Queen Nzinga or Manorinas. They could simply emulate, emulate the courage of, of the people like Amilcar Cabral, Samora and Jacina Michelle, Robert Mugabe, right? People who took the, the battle, the brothers in Swapo in Namibia and the MPLA, even though MPLA has become totally corrupt uh, in, uh, in Angola now, at least the Dos Santos uh, family faction of it is. Apparently they're trying to get that somewhat under control now. But you, you, if you just go back, you, you, you only have to go back like, uh, you know, one generation, two generations at the max, and you will find courageous African people. You can, you can go back to uh, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, and what, what you, you know, our brothers who are still in prison today, you know, the J Jaleel Mutaquims and the... Uh, the uh, Sunniata Akolis and Matula Shakur, you know, these, 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 uh, you know, Chip Fitzgerald, uh, Mamiya Abu-Jamal, courageous. You know, we, we stood in the face of these guys. We stood face to face with them with no fear. No fear. I'm talking about absolutely no fear. You got guns pointed at me. I have no fear of dying. Right? Like Claude McKay says in um, If We Must Die. Pressed to the wall by the cowardly pack, dying but fighting back. Just keep fighting, and you know, and, 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 and we and we can do this. I we say. can do. I mean, look, who are the French? <laughs> I mean, look, they, I mean, come on, man. I mean, you know, we can do this. I mean, I know we're running out of short of time. You're running short of time because we want have an abbreviated program today. But uh, go ahead, Gullah Jack. With uh, yeah, in, in, in my conclusion, brother, uh, <laughs> reflective of what Dr. King said, the U.S. taxpayers years ago financing 80% of the French war cost as related to their ineptitude in Vietnam. Suffice it to say, the more things change, the more they remain the same. And of course, we can emulate Malcolm X and his attempts to connect us to the African masses throughout the continent. Absolutely. Of BB-48. 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 Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power. Uh, if it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world. 